Movement Rio Media presents A Few Good Physios with Dr. Eric Munoz and Dr. Leonidas Scantolides. You can't handle the truth. What is physical therapy? More research. More research. True therapeutic effect. Join us each week as we discuss current trends in medicine, rehabilitation, and strength and conditioning. The answers are out there. All content is a collaboration between On Point Sports Care and Integrated PT Squared. A Few Good Physios is not medical advice and is used for educational purposes only. If you are having pain and or health-related complaints, please seek out a licensed healthcare professional. Thank you for downloading. Enjoy. We're back, episode 16. It's a special day today. Very special day. Yeah. It is Leonidas' 22nd birthday. Yes. It's my <laughs> 22nd name day. Any of you Game of Thrones fans out there, I, uh, I am turning a year older. I had a conversation with my parents last night. It was probably the funniest thing because, you know, your parents are just usually very happy for your birthday. And she says, <laughs> my mom says... This is the last year you're going to be 30. Wow. <laughs> I was wild. like, thank you. Yes, it's true. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, another year older. I'm, I'm very happy that uh, I'm healthy and I don't feel too crazily older. But uh, you and I were having discussions about uh, some things the other day that we were like, Jesus. Sleep. The, 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 sleep and teas. Sleep and, and tea. Different type of teas. Yeah. Um, Sleep, and it was kind of at the end of the conversation, we was like, wow, what are we talking about? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I was like, was this is crazy. Sleep and tea, and, and if we don't go to sleep, it's same. Anyhow, uh, yeah, 39 funny. is cool. It's it's, um, it's a year before 40, you're right. It's the year that, before 40. So it's, it's somewhat, it seems uneventful. The 40 definitely does not, you know, I uh, recently uh, turned 40 and, and definitely, uh you know, a lot of reflection on whoa, four decades, and <clears throat> yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily feel forty, but um, I guess the days I do feel forty. <laughs> yeah, I get, um, when we were having that conversation, I, I was just reflecting because I was getting excited for a tea that you were telling me about, <laughs> and I was like, who the fuck gets excited for a tea like that's gonna help me sleep better? I was, and then I started giving you advice about the teas that I like. Oh, and I was man. like, this tea is the best because after I drink it, I digest my food a little easier and then I can sleep better. I'm like, Jesus Christ. And then I was talking about the night routine. Like, all right, you can go to bed by like 1030, yeah. the latest. Ironically, last week was mm. not a good sleep week for me. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, these are, I guess these are the little details that will make it, you know, change the game in terms of your performance, whether it's, your job, your career as a physical therapist, a, a trainer, and or whatever kind of training you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, as we know, we, we discussed at length, I think, last session, last podcast about the importance of sleep. Yeah. Um, Lee and I, again, highlighting Joe Rogan's podcast, but he had a great, <laughs> um, he had someone on there on sleep. I don't know, remember the guy's name. But It'll be in the show notes again. Yeah, that's where that research <laughs> is. Joe Rogan podcast on each show note, but it, it was no, a game cool. changer. I have shared it with a lot of clients, and they um, they were very appreciative. And uh, it's eye opening and also scary uh, the importance of sleep. But back to the uh, the opening on age. Yeah, I, I I do feel the most apparent thing. Like I ask myself. Okay, I don't necessarily feel older all the time. I, I don't necessarily like when I look in the mirror. I'm not like holy shit. I'm you know I got gray hair and stuff, but I don't feel like it's terrible. 
which is okay. I guess the, that's the biggest thing. The sleep is one of the biggest things I've noticed since I've gotten older. It's become way more... Uh, I, the last couple of weeks, uh, I had some, uh, some of my family visit, which was incredible. Um, we, we just did lots of activities. I got a lot less sleep. And then, um, as we spoke about last time, I took a course. So all, all those things kind of all in once. I was getting not a lot of sleep over the course of two or three days. And rewind back to when I was in my 20s, I could do that probably for a week or maybe a couple weeks, maybe consecutive weekends in a row and not be affected to the extent that I was affected this time after just two days. I was like, <laughs> I if, if you guys follow me on social media, I posted the first night that I got like sufficient sleep and I, I slept 11 and a half hours straight on my, my according to my sleep app. And I got a lot of funny feedback from that. It was like, I wish I could sleep like that. Or oh man! Well, <laughs> not, not it's a negative all, way. It's, all, it's, like all <laughs> a, it's probably all the parents out there because when yeah, you hear when that's you hear what, eleven, that's what they were trying to say. Yeah, is the like parents. <laughs> I mean, I was um, told once, uh, like an ominous thing, where I, I shared with a coworker that I was like, "Oh, what you do?" I was like, "Oh, I rested well over the weekend," and she looked at me and she was like. <clears throat> Get it in now. Because yeah. <laughs> when you have a kid, you're not. and I, and I I looked at her. I was like, wow, she seems like she's exaggerating, but she was she was on, she was right. Because my my yeah, my poor sleep wasn't unfortunately any of my doing last week. It was my little guy decided to uh, recite every word he knew um, <laughs> at three thirty in the morning. Oh, um, again. But definitely, as we age, you know, sleep I think makes a big difference. It's really important. Um, oh, it's cool. So a lot of other things when you get older, I feel like, and maybe you can expand on this too, but you just, you're not as like, at least I find this at work, maybe it's because I'm more comfortable there with the people I'm around, but you don't really, you're a little bit more transparent. Much, much. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's definitely less filters, I guess. And, it, and it's not that you're, um, try to exert your will around your environment. I think it's just like you said, you're, you're a lot more at ease with uh, certain things exactly the more time you are in an environment you can feel better um so we wanted to cover a couple of topics today um this was at the request of we have a facebook group for people to contribute topics so if you don't follow us on facebook give us a follow and then also join the uh, podcast topics group so a colleague of ours uh dr jordan seda he was suggesting some uh topics and so we wanted to follow up on that um in addition to talking about some other things. So uh, today we're going to be discussing movement practices and popular modalities that are out both in the fitness world and in the PT world. And this is somewhat different from what we talked about a couple episodes ago where we touched, <laughs> we were talking about the, uh, uh, I, I can't remember the name of it now, like the squat master. Or the oh, things that belong in a museum. Ah, yes, the museum, yeah. The museum. This will be a little different. I think we're highlighting uh, different or common, uh, common, I would say practices slash techniques. Right. Uh, one would consider becoming proficient at. Right. I mean, and we we've definitely witnessed a lot of these techniques either on ourselves or with our colleagues. Mm-hmm. And just going to give you a brief overview. And I think when Lee and I were discussing this um, this podcast, we were thinking of you know how do we tease out some of the best practices. Uh, within physical therapy um, realm and in the fitness realm as well. Like, how, how do we tease those positive qualities out to kind of combine them both? Yeah, 
Yeah, and so um, one of the, um, I think one of the main topics to discuss is you see a lot of tools now. So in the physical therapy world, when you might go get treatment, you might have heard of Graston, uh, instrument-assisted, soft tissue massage, um, even not even uh, not even tool-assisted massage, ART, which stands for active release technique, things like that. So these are things that are out in our field and um, maybe just to talk a little bit about each one of them and what they mean and what our experience w- is with it. Um, I first wanted to go over some of the, the prices for it because I feel like that's Yeah, a big well, Graston is very expensive. Um, yeah. As I'm looking over here at uh, Lee's research, he researched it very well. It will be on the show notes. <laughs> no, no. The Graston, so three-piece tool from the uh, Graston uh, camp. Yeah. Cost eleven about twelve hundred dollars for three pieces, and then if you want a six piece chicken McNuggets, you it will be twenty two hundred, uh, twenty three hundred dollars for these six pieces. Uh, we're rounding, I'm rounding up by a few dollars. Yeah. So then the courses, you know, six hundred and fifty dollars for a twelve hour course, and then six ninety five for a fourteen hour course. And I don't even know what a smart tool course is. That so that's different. So that's, that's a, a different that's not company. Graston. Yes, that's not Graston. That's a little square piece, I believe. I, I think that's square. Yeah, you stick your hand in it, and it has like a rounded end. Yes, and it then looks you like, like a brass knuckle kind of thing. Exactly. Got it. Um, and the the prices are. I mean, just for the you. I couldn't. I was searching for the price on one. You can't just get one. So that was the minimum that you could get. So that's pretty crazy. So. Uh, at least for the Graston, three pieces, eleven ninety five. That's a really large investment for an in, a clinician or anybody who wants to use it. I've seen trainers use things like this too, um, and I, I don't know. I mean, it's what I don't know what they're making it out of to make it cost that much. But you could probably fashion something together for like twenty bucks. Or <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, the the, pra- the from what I've seen, the the few practitioners that I've seen use it. Um, they definitely have an assortment of tools, and yeah. I guess the benefit with any of these tool-assisted releasing is, is to try to save one's hands. I think, yeah. I think the popularity of this has probably increased with the increased workload on average we see in the industry. Yes. Um, so one, you know, if anybody's listening here that works in a high-volume clinic, you can understand how tiring it is uh, to be constantly working with your hands. So I think that this has probably sprouted out of that the popularity probably has increased because of that. Right. Now, there's there's one thing I, uh, we wanted to touch upon is the the rationale and the basic principles for these tools. Mm. Though, they're a little outdated, and it's now coming to light a little more. If you follow uh, accounts on social media like Clinical Athlete, and maybe if you follow myself, I've posted about this. They've posted a lot about it. There's uh, the Clinical Athlete podcast. They did a whole podcast on evaluating the research on foam rolling and what that means in terms of breaking down fascia and things like that. Adhesions. What is it? What is it? Help me out here. What what is the general score? Because I've kind of strayed strayed away from it only because I I don't feel, one, the compliance is relatively low, like last session Mm -hmm. we discussed that. Mm -hmm. And um, I find it to be relatively ritualistic. So people... Are mindlessly doing it, um, right. so I, in my head, why I would kind of prescribe it is to release, to, to help relieve some pressure from an area. To, 
I don't know. I don't know my rationale. After, <laughs> after the last couple of years, I'm I, I'm questioning my rationale. But let's just say in a runner with some kind of ITB ITB syndrome, whatever that means to uh, the public. Mm-hmm. Um, so the kind of foam roll the lateral, the vastus lateralis, your IT band. But what is the what is the current research on it? The the current research they don't know exactly what it's doing, but this hypothesis. So one thing that they are now saying the likelihood of it doing this is low, which is the breakup of adhesions, loose, loosen up fascia, things like that, especially for the IT band, only because, uh, or I would say mainly, not only, but mainly because cadaver studies on the IT band have shown that there's no way in hell you can put enough pressure on the IT band to break up the actual connections and the, the fascia and the adhesions, as people some say. Um, and they the reason why they know that, are you on... Uh, you on the mode of airplanes? I'm on the, I'm on the airplanes. Oh, okay. I'm in, I'm in the air. <laughs> I'm in the air. <laughs> but they, they've, um, like, there's this famous video. I, I, I might be able to find it for the show notes, but I doubt it. In Europe, I, I, I want to see either it's a bunch of Germans or something like that. They were scientists who took an IT band out of a cadaver, separated it. They attached from a tree to a Volkswagen, and they hung the Volkswagen. So, and it just stayed there. And, it, and so... It, they were trying to show the. They're trying to demonstrate how thick this thing is, and, and there's no way in hell that you're going to produce enough force to break up anything with it. And that was a cadaver's IT band, which most likely is an older individual and weaker and things like that. Right. Um, so the theory now is when you do things like this, you're stimulating the nervous system. So you, you're. I, I think all manual therapy and this kind of stuff. It, it's if you wanted to put it in category or a theme. It's, ne- it's negotiating with the nervous system. You're sitting there saying like, all right, you have a certain uh, predetermined length and tension, and that's dictated by many things, one of which is the nervous system. And so by adding these things on, you're starting to negotiate either a little less tension or increased strength. A little more tension. Or more tension. Right. So, um, so, so neural, I mean, neural, I like the whole negotiating with the nervous system or just neural input, you know, right. just a stimulus of some sort. But I still prescribe uh, foam rolling. Same, I, same. I, I mean, I haven't, yeah, haven't done it as much, but I, I guess my, I'm, I'm very short with my prescription of it in terms because I think when people think of foam rolling, especially a very active crew, they think more is better. Right. So like, oh, it was foam rolling for like an hour, and I'm like, oh, well, no, that's that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's I mean, long. that's a get. Imagine someone doing a deep tissue massage in one area for an hour. How would that feel? You know. No. So it, you could you could I, I, I don't want to say damage, but you could irritate an already irritable tissue um, with foam rolling. Um, and then there's vibrating foam rollers. There's a rumble roller. Mm-hmm. Dude, there's lots of vibrating things now. It's crazy. Uh, uh, at the gym that I work at and at one of the clinics that I'm at, they have the uh, it's the hyper ice, hyper ice vibrating foam roller. I've seen it. Yep. And then there's I don't know if it's hyper ice, but they it looks like a, a really um, large softball. Yes, and it vibrates yes, too. Yes, I've seen that one. So that I tried that was I tried that one in particular, and I can't stay on it for too long because I did it on my thoracic spine, and it started to make my like jaws shake back and forth and my head rattle. So I don't know if I had it turned up too high or what, but so neural <laughs> a neural input. I mean, again, you could be excite, you know, ramping things up in a way that you may not like. But it, it's a pretty interesting the tools and stuff. That I mean, I want to say ten years ago, back, let's say fifteen years ago, there was a soft foam roller and like 
a high density hard foam roller and you know people used to use the soft foam roller mm-hmm. and they kind of upgraded and those are like extinct now you won't see a soft foam roller no, but you will see hard, hard or <laughs> rumble roller which is like these spikes oh jesus yeah that's it actually crazy. feels pretty good in the legs but mm-hmm. um it's, it's just amazing how things have evolved now moving into these tools yeah so graston you know i've seen mixed results at least just through observation where certain patients seem to be in uh, a lot of discomfort and uh, I, my personal belief is the tactile feedback from manual therapy and no, feeling your patient's tension or even their withdrawal from some of the techniques you're using, I think some of that could be lost mm-hmm. with an instrument. Um, that's just my personal belief. Um, there's a certain level of connection when you're performing manual therapy that, that there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of factors that we don't know. Obviously, we, we just discuss it all the time. But mm-hmm. I think that the instrument may provide, it may be a barrier at times. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about it. I'll let Lee elaborate a little on Graston. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. He's, now he's the expert. <laughs> I, I wish, no, uh, they, 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 I agree with you. I feel like um, you'll, you'll lose a lot of that connection with the patient if you're having a manual therapy session and you choose to use one of these tools only because you don't necessarily have any contact with them. And like Eric said, you don't feel how either they're retracting from it or they're tensing up or you're monitoring the breathing, things like that. So those are important aspects of manual therapy. And and as we, you know, a lot of people who I've met on the outside of this podcast, they have reached out and basically are like, well, if you you don't believe in manual therapy, then what do you believe? Well, I, I still believe in manual therapy, but I don't believe it for the reasons that they're originally were thought to be causing a change in the body i think that connection when you start to put your hands on people and you start to palpate things and quote treat certain tissues and joints then you're affecting the conscious and the subconscious part of that person you're you're affecting all levels and there's so many layers to everybody's condition and those layers might not be addressed by a conversation might not be addressed by education it might need to be addressed by actually having them feel different temporarily. And I have read some posts online that a lot of people are against that, which I find interesting. But you can always educate people afterwards why they feel better, and then you can continue that. My experience so far in the last year implementing implementing pain science principles along with manual therapy have been uh, way uh, way improved in terms of my outcomes. Only because I have found when I start doing these things immediately from the first session and educate them about what they can handle in terms of pain science, and in addition, giving them manual therapy and then also educating them on principles that might be affecting why we're doing manual therapy, things like that, they'll need less manual therapy as time goes on. Because now you've already given that information on the first session, even though they feel good and they come back, and then they're going to have a realization. They're like, well, I felt good because of what they said rather than my actual tissues changing and things like that. So that's why I think these things are conjunction uh, have to be done in conjunction, and then when you implement things like the tools, it can some not only lose the connection with the patient, but it can sometimes confuse them because you're using something that is being – the principle is supposed to be like you're, you're breaking up scar tissue – you're moving fascia and, and muscles and things like that. But it's really the, the research is very weak 
on that and the logistics behind that are very weak based on what we know about certain tissues like the IT band. Yeah, and I mean, look, the, these tools, uh, as Lee was mentioning, uh, I would think have a, an effect on the nervous system very similar to manual therapy. Right. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, if it's helping your patients and, you know, it's not hurting your patients and it's helping, as we discussed last uh, podcast, you know, the more tools, the merrier and to be able to be able to pull out this in, this Graston tool on the right person um, would be key. I mean, as Lee mentioned, I think the the reason, I mean, I do very similar techniques as I did X years ago, but the reasoning I think is a lot different. The way I describe it to patients about, oh, now I feel better, what did you do? I don't know what you did. And I was like, well, you know, think of it as us providing a window um, to move a little differently, to feel a little different, to feel maybe a little less tension in an area. Um, but at the end of the day, it's going to be, you're going to, you know, your body will self-regulate right. if given the right opportunity. And I think manual res- manual therapy is, is a great op- great tool to use to kind of open that window. In a lot of cases, having a, a an education, a, a pain science kind of education on with the patient, teaching them an exercise or exercises, Often that pattern is really ingrained, um, and it, it takes a little more to, uh, if I can say, unlock a certain pattern. Um, yeah. And I would like to use the one of the more famous pain science therapists out there, Diane Jacobs, as an example. Mm. So Diane Jacobs, she's a Canadian physical therapist, um, and I, I have not taken her course dermoneuromodulation, but I have read pieces of her book, and one of our colleagues, Patrick Lyon, went through his, her whole course and did an in-service back at the clinic, and we got to see it firsthand after that, and I've seen, I've read a lot of her stuff. She's got a great blog, very in-depth. I think I mentioned this before. She reads very intense neuroscience. She's kind of on the neuroscience part of it in the sense that she goes into cellular makeup and um, you know a little bit of philosophy too about our consciousness. But she, uh, she what she does for treatment wise, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with it, de- uh, dermoneuromodulation is basically addressing the skin and just changing uh, how some of the receptors in the skin respond to stimuli. So you know, primarily this is for chronic pain patients who have most likely have failed other uh, interventions and stuff like that. But you you can see how when you do that, she's still a, hand, quote, hands-on method because she's doing the evaluations and she's um, assessing their movements and assessing how they feel when she palpates and then applies this uh, dermomodulation and then has success. And so what that success that she hypothesizes is coming from is that changing that neural in output. So now instead of having this feedback that this patient might have where this painful stimulus kind of bouncing back and forth between the brain and the tissues, she's now providing a novel stimulus to that area that's not causing discomfort, nor is it, quote, causing uh, something that would be considered a threat, but something that is new. And then that changes the makeup of the receptors. So we have so many receptors in our skin, the most in our skin, and they uh, sense pressure, uh, muscle length, uh, tissue length, um, temperature, you know, all these things in our blood, things like that. So uh, by affecting all these things, you can change feedback quite a bit. So that, I think, more has to – I think that's what – when we talk about these tools, when you do it to a certain extent, not to the point where people are, like, almost bloodied and 
bruised up, which I've seen awful I've pictures seen, of. Yes, I've um, seen I, I think if you do a little softer, you can kind of achieve what she's doing, which is change the the input output around the skin. Right, and I I think the courses go around <clears throat> being able to position. First, they probably go over the guideline, you know, their um, guidelines, but when to kind of what tool to use and what area, depending on how accessible that tissue is. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen it used on like Achilles and yeah. hip. I mean, I've seen it used across the board, neck, different different tools for different parts of the body. Mm-hmm. But that neuromodulation, I mean, I've been on the other side of that. Patrick, I remember, treated me for quite some time. And mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing how um, seemingly he wasn't doing much. Yeah. And Crazy. within minutes, my my restrictions i'll use my my myself as an example he was treating my neck for a pretty significant radiculopathy where i had some numbness tingling pain in my neck after a fall Mm. i don't know three or four weeks into it you know he had me in like a sustained mobilization really gentle we were chatting yada 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 before you know it i i felt something go something kind of relax in my neck Mm. and immediately I had more range of motion, less pain in my neck. So, again, I don't know um, exactly what happened, but I am a believer in, in what he was attempting to – well, not attempting. what the, the treatment techniques he used. He also had a grip. What was that grip thing? Uh, Dysum. Dysum. So he was using that, which was pretty interesting. And, again, to this um, – unfortunately, we're not surrounded by this level of practitioner. But, not, um, not anymore. Pat, wherever you are – Thank we you. learned a lot from you, mate, <laughs> and you've changed our lives. Yeah, yeah, his, his, he did forever. A lot. He did a lot of goodness. Oh, but, so Graston, so Graston's one of those. Yeah, Graston's uh, smart tool, and I think there's some out, some other ones out there. But those are the, when I when I did a quick Google search, those are the two most popular ones. Um, ART courses. Uh, that was another thing Doctor Seda wanted us to touch on. ART stands for active release technique. It's uh, for a little history of it, it it was originally created by a chiropractor, I believe, mm. and it is very popular in a sense in the chiropractic world and and some in the PT world. A lot I know a lot of PTs who who um, go through the courses. Now there's a caveat: these aren't just courses you go and take and pay for, um, and say you're an ART uh, practitioner. When you go and take these courses, for you to remain an ART practitioner, you have to go back. And do it again to a lesser extent, apparently, after mm-hmm. several years. And so you have to pay a good amount of money. And so the initial um, payments are pretty high. So there's three sections, three main ones. There's upper extremity, lower extremity, and spine. And then I didn't know this, but they had a full body week course that you could take, which is like, I mean, oh, I don't know. That, that's, I don't know. As a continued ed course, to, to take in all that information and, and at one time, I think that's a little much. Yeah, so it's a seven-day course, and it's about $5,100. So Woo! That's, that's a lot. That's I mean, expensive. what we know and how the adult learner, you know, consumes information, I mean, an hour at best. Um, ten minutes. Best, ten yeah. minutes, man. Apparently, after you, ten minutes, we're, we're stretching. Yeah, like after two minutes, I start to lose <laughs> my focus. <laughs> I um, think nowadays it's gone less. <laughs> when we were in school, we learned about this stuff, and we had an incredible teacher, Dr. Driscoll, um, who taught us this stuff? I, I think it was, I, I might be wrong. Was it twenty minutes or ten minutes where uh, you start to kind of fizzle out? I think it was twenty, but I mean okay. over an hour. I think it was just at an hour, like you need a class a break. length, just about forty-five minutes to an hour uh, tension span. And that they really, 
based a lot of our class breaks on that. Yeah. All this other stuff. Which is pretty cool. It was, yeah, it was like, all right, you guys had enough. Mm-hmm. But back to Lee's point, seven days, full body, releasing everything, earlobes, nose. <laughs> there's, there's a technique for everything. But I personally have like kind of bastardized, I think, some ART. I mean, I think Same I here. hybrid, you know, work on a point while a person's moving through a range and I use contract, relax and sustained hold. I, you know, I, I think as time goes on and after X amount of courses, you start finding your own way and combining different systems. I mean, I know some people don't agree with um, that, but um, Lee and I do. And most importantly, you know, it kind of matches what, what I'm trying to accomplish with the person in front of me. Exactly. But yeah. the ART the concept behind it, I'll let Lee elaborate a bit. What do, what do you, like, Lee, Lee's <laughs> the, the expert. expert. He's an expert. I mean, expert. He just read, like, 10 minutes in Google. He made <laughs> sure right he what, didn't this. overwhelm himself. <laughs> and then he got on, and he's like, now I know. So, ART. Uh, <laughs> I'm on Google right now, just reading <laughs> verbatim. Um, no, ART stands for Active Release Technique. Um, and basically, it's like a pin and stretch from, you know, that's the most simplest thing that I understand that it is. And everybody who's probably ART certified is probably, like, breaking their phone right now mm. <laughs> like, he's crazy no um but basically an example would be let's say if you wanted to release uh the subscapularis muscle and that's a muscle that's one of our rotator cuff muscles and to palpate it we have to go into the armpit um and kind of get uh, on the front of the scapula and so if you have someone laying down and then you got one hand dug into that muscle and you kind of pin down quote a tender spot and then you're going to range that person into where they can't go anymore, which would be over their head, or they feel like they are restricted by what you're palpating. Then you're going to have them actively go into that range, go back and forth while you pin it down. Um, so that is, again, I think something like that, you're not necessarily changing <clears throat> absolute tissue length, but it, you're going to change how the nervous system is understanding that length. So maybe this person had only been used to raising their arm a certain height for their entire life, and they can't go higher than that because they, quote, have stiff tissues, but it might just be their nervous system has just adjusted to that position. So when you do something like this, which is pretty aggressive and it can sometimes be very painful, you're going to provide a lot of new stimuli that's going to, quote, loosen things up and open up that area. Yeah, and I I think (coughs) of it as a a reset, you know, Mm -hmm. or... Yeah, reset almost like you're, you're flooding the receptors to confuse i think it causes a lot of confusion yeah but in some cases that confusion helps expand people's boundaries i mean um so that that's a great example because i definitely use it that one that yeah. way i, I use, use that, that. yeah that i'll, I'll have them go through a pnf pattern yeah while i'm in there and they'll they'll do it while they, while, while you're while i'm there i'm, I'm digging in or, or even <clears throat> this guy nice. um yeah it's a good great great technique but i think um Active release, it's a tool. Yeah. It's a tool and use it. So, yeah, they have the they have the full body course, seven days, $5,100. If you just do the upper extremity course, level one, $2,190. That's three days. Um, lower extremity course, $2,193 days. The spine, it's a little less for some reason, $1,790 for three days. Um, these are high prices. So, like, if you were to take a uh, PT course, I'm thinking IPA, Institute of Physical Art, because they're usually three days, maybe three and a half. Yeah. That's like seven, nine dollars. Even if it's a two-day course, it's probably like I don't know, anywhere from six and change to maybe eight. Right. So it's pricey. I, I right. would say that 
ART's been around for a while, so... Very long time. It's very interesting to me. Yeah, so the fact that it's been around... <laughs> one of Lee's favorite words, interesting. Uh, the oh fact that it's been I, around... I can't even... Uh, I'm trying to cut that off. I'm trying to find I was listening the vocabulary. to a, another podcast, <laughs> and uh, Mr. Jocko was talking about... He hate. He, he's like, I say dichotomy way too much, and, I, and I, I couldn't... Yeah, he says that a lot. It's in his book. But anyway, I think... Um, doing this podcast you hear yourself talk and you're like wow i sound ridiculous it's this true i guess this is good some self-reflection it's a lot of self too much too much <laughs> hours oh shit but i i do have to mention this is uh around the time where we start mentioning other podcasts uh i do have to mention jocko <laughs> joe rogan anything else uh tim ferris oh, there so, we go. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's a very famous podcaster um uh, a guy that we had on here, Elliot Lindy, a former patient of both of ours, he reached out to me and he reminded me, he was listening to Tim Ferriss, the time in 2015 where Tim Ferriss had Pavel Sastolun, so, oh God, I hope I got that name right, uh, his last name right, uh, but Pavel is the the one credited to bring the kettlebell, kettlebell over from Russia and he's still around, he's still running the Strong First organization. But uh, Elliot was really impressed by this podcast, and I had listened to it back in 2015. But this was I, I re-listened to it now, and I'm blown away by it because all the information he has in there was in terms of like exercise science, muscle physiology, and programming. Just like Tim Ferriss said in the podcast, he's like, you know, you have so much clarity in this stuff, and it just uh. changes the way you think. And it's true. He's just it, 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 every well. I think the why he's so clear about it. And the way he talks about it, the way he does, is because he saw it, it right in front of him work. And he worked in Russia for a very long time applying this stuff. And he did it with his clients, did it, did it with the special forces. And yeah, he trained the—he used to be a train—well, he used to be part of um, an elite um, an elite force similar to the Navy SEALs in, in Russia. Russia. And then spats? made his way. I think he trained with a lot of Navy SEALs also. I mean, some of the people mm -hmm. higher up in his organization. Um, uh, let me see. Uh, I'll just type in Russian Russian special. Lee's getting flagged right now. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> Ooh, why, are you, why are you Googling Russia? Uh, <laughs> here, that's it, right there. Spetsnats. Spetsnats? Yeah. He, he trained these individuals... I, get, I think they're one of the higher special forces in the world, wow, wow. Uh, which is so cool. And so, if you want to get really inspired to do kettlebell stuff, just Google Pavel and special forces, and usually he he comes up. The Tim Ferriss podcast is, I think it's 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 awesome. It's all it's easy listening, mm -hmm. um, and you just see how how serious this gentleman is. But just some some philosophical points of running should be relaxing. I mean, it's it's. Uh, he gets into that, right? Yeah, well, he, I remember he. Uh, what, what I heard in the last part of it was like, you know, every it should not be a workout. The, the workout itself means nothing. You should be. It should be a practice every time, and it should be an enjoyable practice. You're learning about the movement, and you're practicing Hello. the movement. But I hope this guy <laughs> likes your accent, dude. <laughs> you're gonna have this guy in your bedroom with a black suit on, like you make fun of me. Lee, Lee, this is not funny, Lee. This is. <laughs> No, but he he really. I mean, Lee put me on to uh, kettlebell training and himself. And when I listen, I, I guess I listened to this before I got involved, and just at the same time that I think Lee's sister uh, gave a seminar. And 
it just made sense and it was very simple and it, and it goes against a lot of current concepts in fitness which is you know work do you want to drop or you want to throw up um, it's a very different methodology where you're technically yeah. you're working at 70% of 70% of your effort probably 90 to 95% of the time exactly he explained the physiology behind it and i do remember learning this stuff both from listening to him going to the, the Strong First certification and then from school. But to hear him say it, there's way more, again, there's more, way more clarity and simpleness to it, where or simplicity, whatever. Um, he talks about what's happening when you feel that burn in the muscle. And he's like, you, you don't ever want to feel that unless you, you're doing this program. And he explains the program. And he, there's a very specific reason for everything. Um, and he's like, we don't know everything in terms of what's happening, but these are the things that we do know. And they figured this, these things been figured, have been figured out empirically because they've had to do trial and error for years and years and years. And I didn't know this, but the records that most of the Russian athletes broke in the eighties are still held. Yes. Because yeah. of their strength conditioning program. Yes. I mean, it's controversial from oh, what we know now, yeah, but at the same, you know, but at the same token, as controversial as it is, and we'll, you know, elephant out of the room, the steroid usage that mm -hmm. may have been used was kind of happening across the board. So, right. yeah, but I, I think as a methodology of training, this kind of leads us somewhat into our next mm -hmm. topic down the road. Uh, but in con never being sore, like, for instance, kettlebell training, uh, the idea of going at 70%, often you may not get sore, after work, after adapting to this kind of training, right? Um, and I think the consideration to be made is the people he was training had to be ready at a moment's notice, and you, they can't have sore quads when they're on a mission, on a two, two or three day mission in the middle of nowhere. So mm -hmm. I mean, it goes to the the population that he's worked with, um, which is you know, it's military, and I right. think it goes into why I think it's so popular here and amongst law enforcement and military uh, is for that reason. Definitely. And uh, and also our, our favorite athletes to talk about are combat athletes. Correct. And they're so. using a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and, and I think that's the primary, that, that should be the primary mode of exercise for them. So kind of to tap into our next thing is like considerations for different athletes. And you want to break it down by many different things, and one of which is their demands. It can be energy demands. It can be movement demands. So let's say a combat athlete, very high energy demands, uh, very high uh, explosive demands. So those things can be trained with kettlebell training uh, over and over again. Um, yeah, and then it goes back into working with kettlebells, not getting as sore, being able to train, spar. Mm-hmm. That's right. So being able to do kettlebell workout and then do um, your regular training, which would be the sparring or whatever it may be that day, that's super important. So <clears throat> one of the things that have helped me along as a, as a strength conditioning person and a, a, a trainer over the years is breaking down sports by mo planes of movement. So, you know, everyone can look at it differently, but you can, you can identify like primary, secondary, and tertiary movement planes. So, like, let's say a simple sport like um, baseball, you know, what what are the primary planes of movement that they need to be pretty strong in? Frontal, transverse, 
sagittal. I mean, just the good old humdrum plane, you know, <laughs> what you've learned. One, two, three. <laughs> the one, two, three, for sure, I would think. Yeah, I, um, I would put the primary at transverse. So if you want to think of like throwing, running, throwing, throw, running, uh, swinging, um, and then they obviously they got to run, so sagittal plane. But I, I think they're going to need a little bit more. Um, there's less familiarity of the muscles to be strong in like whipping a 90 mile for all uh, 90 mile per hour fastball or throwing from center field to home plate or something like that. Like right. you got to really train for that versus where th- they walk, they're going to be able to run. They can train that strength to run, but they're already kind of familiar with that movement. <clears throat> so I would put the primary one at transverse and then I would put secondary at, um, sagittal and then tertiary at frontal. Um, but yeah, so you want, and then you want to think about our each. You, you identify the primary movement planes. Then, what are the energy systems that they have to use? Are they going to be like throwing eighty balls in a row? No, they're going to throw like one ball at a time, and, and each inning's not going to be you know they're usually like ten second bursts. So they're mm-hmm. going to use like one of the shortest energy systems that you can, like creatine phosphate system. Um, so you want to train. You're not going to train them like you would. Someone who has uh, an endurance. Soccer athlete. Yeah, Mm. exactly. So um, they're going to primarily be doing a lot of lifting. They're going to. They should be doing mainly some explosive stuff. They don't have to do like snatches and cleans, but they can work through basic things like kettlebells, kettlebell swings, uh, cleans, stuff like that, um, which are a little bit less demanding on the whole body and skill than it is for like a barbell. A lot of stop start, I would say. being able to turn on and off and there's a whole lot of waiting so i think you know a baseball athlete would be using that as an example being able to stay stay mobile uh, during the game i mean you see these guys pro athletes constantly warming up but often you see them just kind of chilling out i mean yeah and who am i to say i don't i don't know what the level i don't know what they've done i'm watching one little clip of it but yeah, being able to kind of stay engaged. Reactions, another the level high, of yeah. react. Yeah, high react. They, they <clears> definitely <throat> have to work on their reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting you say about keeping moving because I've gotten a lot of patients who are not very athletically inclined, or, and or they just don't know a lot about sports, and they they would joke about baseball how like they're always pulling something and they don't really do much. And I'm like, look, these guys are extremely explosive athletes. They right. can run off the line real fast and they can hit a ball really hard. They can like throw and swing really hard. Um, and like you said, they're waiting around a lot. So that imagine having to explode and then you basically are just static for God knows how long, you know, up to three minutes at a time and you have to stay loose and they're not always going to be able to do that. Um, so uh, Pavel actually talked about that, like the fast and loose stuff. You, yes, you know about that, yes, right? Yes, yes. And then he's always shaking in between. Yeah, I, I didn't know the exact science behind it, but he talked about it. It's about like getting rid of the hydrogen ions that build up during muscle contraction, and those hydrogen ions can turn into they can be toxic for your muscles if they build up too much. And he says when you build up a sufficient amount of hydrogen ions, I hope I'm remembering this correctly, then that's when stuff like the burn comes in the muscles, and it could be somewhat toxic for the whole system. So the whole shaking out, one of the pro- protocols he talked about was through, through another science, sports scientist over in Russia, and I can't remember his name, but he was talking about training type 1 muscle fibers, and each after each set, because it's like a super slow set that you do for like 30 to 60 seconds, 
then uh, or maybe even longer than that. Each set, you have to rest for five to ten minutes. But during that five to ten minutes, you're just basically doing fast and loose the whole time. Shaking around. I, Shaking I recall out. listening to that, and intuitively, I remember, like, hopping before sets of squats or something. Kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know, almost to ramp myself up. Stimulate nervous Stimulate system. Stimulate the nervous system, jump around, but that just shaking it out kind of thing. I mean, it's pretty interesting to hear the science because when you think of the burn, I think everybody thinks of lactic acid. And that's right? incorrect. That is very incorrect. I mean, <laughs> that's incorrect. The, the <laughs> <laughs> there is no, no like <laughs> lactic, lactate threshold or, uh, yeah. Well, it's not, I, I don't, they, they went into it in the podcast and I've heard this before and I learned it myself. It's not the actual like they 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 were not identify they cannot identify the fact that even though you have a byproduct of lactate or I guess lactic acid that's not what's actually stimulating that sensation of burning the hydrogen ions apparently are more likely to cause that burning because of the change in the chemistry in your blood. All right, that's crazy. so uh, and that stuff that stuff is so cool and if you. I took, when I was a kinesiology major in undergrad and I had an exercise phys class, it's, there's so much more stuff out there that, you know, we don't learn about on a regular basis because we're not like exercise physiology PhDs. Um, But I think that stuff is fascinating because if you start to be able to manipulate all the performance levels and things like that, you're going to have a lot of efficient athletes out there. (laughs) Oh, for sure. I think we're living in really interesting times where a lot of this new science is being applied mm-hmm. um and different modalities i think you know 20 talking about talking about this with someone else about like college football high school football and like we learned to squat bench mm-hmm. squat bench i mean <laughs> deadlift i mean i don't know it was just it was so weird that the weight room reflecting on it it was you know two people spotting you get your hips back you know, bar to chest. It, it was very, and again, obviously, each program, each school varies. Yeah. Um, but things have come a long way um, in terms of how we go about that. It's very powerful. Yeah, I mean, it, it's changing. Yeah, it's changing quickly. It is. So, um, what the hell? Energy systems pass. So considerations, considerations. So we we're using baseball as a an example, and we, we're tying in Pavel's methodology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but considerations, planes of movement. Season based, that's another one that Lee has a bullet on. Um, a lot of pro athletes, uh, at least my experience, uh, some of them in the off season really go off off the, off the rails. Oh my god, off yeah. the rails, and that's either they gain mistake. a lot of weight or they just become deconditioned, right? And um, I guess at 22 or 25, they can get back on the horse quite easily, but uh, yeah, it's it's something to consider when when training. I, I see, you know, where I, where I'm at velocity performance. There's a lot of pro athletes that are training off season. Mm. That um, I think f- football athletes, track athletes, and uh, you could hear them talk and say, "Hey, you know, I wasn't that bad. You know, I'm all right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm ready. I'm back. ready. Yeah, when they come back, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> oh, I gained 15 pounds, and you see the trainers shake it, shake their head. The, the interesting thing is, is in two or three weeks you can see these people transform. Sure. Um, pretty amazing to see in action. But, yeah, season makes a difference um, mm. in terms of how you're going to period, you know, ramp up their program. Yeah, they, and it's funny because that the course that I went to, the uh, Juggernaut Performance Summit, mm. they talked about this specifically, and I think I mentioned that study where they were able to put a number 
on the kind of uh, hitting, how long did you take a break from this movement and then where that injury happened and, you know, where you would need to stay to, for that injury not to occur again. They were able to calculate that number. Um, so I, I can't remember the exact percentage, but you were supposed to maintain, I think it was around 30% of what you normally could do, even on the, quote, rest time. So you could use your repetition maximum for that. You could use mileage. You could use uh, intensity levels or whatever sport you're doing. But it's a great little uh, – I'll post it in the show notes, I guess. There you go. More <laughs> research. <laughs> no, I mean, this should be easy to find. That was in the, the PowerPoint at the course. Um, and, yeah, so and that makes sense to me where you keep moving, but you're not stressing the fuck out the whole time. Like, you're not trying to PR on a brand new movement that you're trying to do. So that's another thing, too, I wanted to touch on is, like, let's say you have a, a professional athlete. We're going to go to the extreme. Professional baseball athlete. They're in the off season. And they are not, and this is common too, they're not familiar with like power movements. Clean, jerk, snatch. You think you, you should teach them how to do a power movement on the off season? No. Not I mean, really. No, I mean, look, and the, what's the carryover? I mean, that's right. another very debatable fact. Like the whole concept of we, we've kind of lived through functional training, which is kind of, it should all be functional, right? But um, <laughs> the carryover on a power clean to someone's pitching ability is probably pretty poor. Yeah. Um, and the risk of uh, teaching a pro athlete who has already a movement, a desirable movement pattern for their sport, um, you're now going to try to get them to acquire a skill. And the question is why? Um, the introduction to that kind of a complex skill can take years sometimes. Yeah, so. among, with, you know, and that's with training. With training. That's with someone watching. You're even, I mean, if you want to, pick up powerlifting on your own it's gonna be pretty tough to to be able to self-manage that even with videos um mm-hmm. yeah you, you'd have a, a need to train die but yeah that again that specificity of movement and as lee just said planes of movement when you know when is this baseball player gonna have to snatch you know 225 over their head mm-hmm. probably not no uh, so we have planes of movement we have seasons to considerate to consider um person's obvious past history but now we go into their past or current injury situation so i think this is one of the biggest things i think one of the main things that we can learn from all this pain science is that we're now finding out that there there is bigger stuff going on than just a patho mechanical uh change so meaning like you know, you look at, you know, lower back pain and the research on that and, and, and athletes and uh, even AC, there's a great study. Oh, God, I'm almost hesitant to mention it because I didn't put it in He's the show notes, but I'll, show I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this I is promise. the third show note. I know. I got, oh, God. So <laughs> um, but the a, a, there was a recent ACL uh, return to sports study, and they found that – actually, I sent this to a colleague of mine, so I'll be able to find it um, – they found that fear had way more to do with their successful return to sport than all of the other markers like hop tests, range of motion, quad strength, things like that. And I am totally on board with that in the sense that if you have a, an athlete who has an injury, they re- re- rehabbed it and they recovered and you're trying to get them back to their sport, <clears throat> that's probably one of the first things that has to be addressed is 
okay, they, they have to have a sit down and be like, all right, well, you know, what's the biggest thing uh, preventing you from going back into the sport? And I'm worried. I'm worried about injuring it again. Um, they're, they're worried about actually doing well, whatever it may be. Well, they should have a little conversation about where they stand functionally and then um, addressing those worries by practical means. So strength, yeah. endurance, everything. This, this is a common, um, you know, for the physical therapists out there, we could all kind of relate or hopefully relate to, a, I'll use a, an amateur runner, has a calf tear, <clears throat> worried about returning to running, playing tennis, recreational tennis, running. Well, I'm not sure, you know, I don't know. If, I don't want to re-injure it. So we got it, like Lee said, kind of challenge that. As therapists, one of the little methods that I would use is like, well, what makes you think that you're going to re-tear it? Well, you know, sometimes it's still tight. All right, let's 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 check this out. You've been hopping. You you told me yesterday you ran for the light. You, <laughs> That's you a know, big thing yeah, in New York, actually. Yeah, that, yeah you um, <clears throat> basically evidence to kind of dispel that. Now, is there a risk of... You tearing your calf again, there's always a risk, but, you know, it's the same risk you had prior to this injury. Right. So, again, challenging their their belief and challenging their fear is definitely part getting, whether it's an athlete, amateur, or professional. And you have to challenge that fear as aggressive as possible. You yes. have to tell them that they're... <laughs> yes. I mean, you should <laughs> tell kidding. them. You should... Make them jump in front of you, like run, run now. I was <laughs> just joking. No, no. <laughs> no, but you, you obviously you got to tailor to your your um, your audience. But yes. really, that what as therapists that that's a daily question we get. Did, am I ready? Am I? You know, and it's a gray area. No one really knows. Uh, but objectively, all of the signs and symptoms that were kind of teased out during an evaluation after this person, let's say, tore their calf. You know, there should be some objective changes that you could point to so the patient knows, has some evidence. And most importantly, the buildup. So this person used to be a marathon runner. They haven't ran more than a mile or two, you know, starting slow. I mean, I'm going to give an amateur runner that wants to run a, a, a marathon a run walk. Well, that's easy. I don't feel like I'm working out. Great. Great. Just let it be evidence so that, you know, you sleep on it. The next time you run, you know, you're now not as tense. Because I think a lot of people do re-injure because of this fear and this guarding pattern that exists. And that guarding pattern interrupts, you know, efficient movement. So Exactly. So, yeah, you just um, that's a huge consideration with training any athlete, whether it's amateur or professional. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to be going through this next week. Wow! What's a, oh, <laughs> he's coming. Lee's coming out of retirement. I'll be returning to uh, jujitsu next week, and it's been since the end of June. I actually, thought uh, of it. and I, I, you know, I, I was messing around with my girlfriend the other night, and we were because she does jujitsu too, and so I, I was just <laughs> trying to do a, like a little guard play, and she rolled me a little bit more into my neck, and I immediately <laughs> the initial thought was like, "Oh shit, I gotta not injure my neck." But I was like, "Oh, I feel fine though. This is fine." And I got up afterwards, and I was fine. But I will be going through this, and I'm going to attempt to use the same um, methods as I would a patient, and I'm going to ask for you know colleagues' helps and th- stuff like that. And so, but these are things that have to be considered, and I addressed this from day one. So, like how I mentally dealt with it is, I went. I think I, I went to the whole story through previous podcasts, but I went to the office at the school, 
and I put off, I froze my account for longer than I thought I would have to. And that just got it out of my head for now, so I didn't have to worry about, you know, there's a, there's a too early timeline to go back. So now I gave myself enough room. I've been improving. Today, actually, I got up for the first time. I didn't post it. I'm not going to post it, but I'll talk about it here. Uh, I got up to 24 kilo uh, four times on a floor press. Wow. I couldn't even get up. I, I think I told this. I, I, I couldn't even get up at 12 kilo once on the floor press when this initially happened. And so I felt really hopeful today. I felt really good. And it's obviously significantly weaker to the right, but it's definitely better. And the improvement is pretty quick. So Pretty cool testament in the body healing. I mean, initially, when you have neurological weakness, it um, it's a really scary thing. It um, was, yeah. Numbness and tingling. And that contraction of my tricep, I had, I had like the squishy tricep. You and now it's, now it's like, it's actually, I can actually poke on it and it's hard it's good crazy. stuff man it, the body heals the That's body it. heals have given the right lee mm -hmm. gave it the right opportunity i think if he continued to train and stress his already stressed body it might have not turned out that way no and i think i would have uh injured some other things maybe my shoulder my elbow because when i started to do some basic lifting initially my elbow did not feel stable i was like this is really weird um so imagine getting arm barred with that kind of lack of strength that would have been Screwed. And they would have, they would have done it. Yeah, <laughs> I went right for it. Uh, yeah, so yeah, we we touched on some um, uh, considerations today, some tools, um, and we went over some other things about age. And it wasn't just my age that delayed my healing. That's another thing too. I hear all the time. I'm sure you do too. But uh, is this because I'm getting older? No, this. <laughs> I, I just had this conversation with my 81 year old client. And um, how you hear from a lot of, I would consider younger individuals, how, you know, is this just because I'm aging? Obviously, things do change as we age. Yeah. But having that mindset often is a limiting mindset. And uh, my 81-year-old guy, you know, he gets up. He has his movement practice. He does a little mobility in the morning. I see him about twice a week. He gets to the gym another day. Uh, but daily he works out, very regimented with his sleep, um, has a very busy social calendar. I mean, he goes to shows and plays, and it's pretty inspiring. But, when, you know, when you mention age to him, you know, he doesn't, again, he comes from a different generation. Mm -hmm. um, but I have met 25-year-olds say, hey, you know, my knee's hurting because I'm getting older. And I'm like, yeah. wait a minute, you know. No, no, it's not. No, you're 25. You're, you're right. <laughs> and even, look, even 40, you know. Um, yeah. um, old, and I caught myself the last couple of weeks. I'm going to self-disclose something. When I was working with some partners at Henzo's, I would be like, yeah, man. I said something to the effect of, yeah, as an old man. And I saw my partner look at me like, you know, <laughs> old man, you're still coming at me, old man. You're not, you're not laying down. So That's I even myself put that, and I said, why am I even saying that, you know? I think it's natural to do that, though, like because we all feel it. We feel right. it, and then we. This is this is why we need checks, checks and balances. You know, Jocko talks about this all the time. Don't let your emotions just run, you know, out of control in your head. You have to have some checks. And I, I think it's one thousand percent human to be like, oh, I know I'm older. This, you know, I, I you say things like that, and I say, I say things like that too. But do you know? Keep in mind, be like, well. Actually, I'm doing pretty good for this age, and I can do this, this, and this, and, and not letting that that emotion 
uh, eat away s- to everything else and saying that that's the primary reason either for injury or energy. And I think that's a big mistake our medical community can do because I've heard this so many times before where people come back from the doctors and be like, oh, he told me that this just happened because I'm old. Like, that's the primary reason. No, it's not the primary reason. No, it's what about, did, did he ask you about your diet? Did he ask you about your sleep? Did he ask you about your movement history? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's <coughs> and we know that through, through research now, how, you know, those individuals that do have a movement practice in their life, you know, their, their quote, aging process in some respects, it seemed to have been mitigated somehow. I mean, obviously... You know, exercise can be considered like the fountain of youth to some extent. A hundred percent. Especially with endurance athletes and brain and brain develop or brain degeneration, I guess, mm-hmm. um, getting that oxygen in. But again, not not just patching it up and saying, "Hey, this is because I'm quote old." Um, a lot of the pathoanatomical stuff that we could point to, a lot of the MRI readings, the the mm. the, the gray hair on the inside. Oh, the degeneration that happens after you're 22. That's right. Um, you know, I wish, and we've gone over this countless times. I wish that mm-hmm. the language could change. And I think it will. I think it's becoming more exposed. Age. Re- I, I have seen an MRI. To be fair, say age-related changes. Really? Which age-related changes sounds better than degenerative? Absolutely. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of yeah. negative connotations with that. Did in that podcast that pa- Papa was on? Did he, do you remember what he talked about with his father? No. Oh my God, that, that's where I ended just now. Is that uh, Pavel talked about his father starting powerlifting at seventy, oh. and amazing. at seventy eight he he pulled off the ground four oh five. That's amazing. And uh, and he won apparently some co- competition for his age group, of course, seventy eight years old, but. I, people may be like, well, he's got certain genetics that make him superhuman. Well, guess what? He still breathes oxygen, and mm-hmm. he still looks out of two eyes, walks on two legs, and he's he's a, he's a human being. And so that gives some potential about what our bodies are capable of. Genetics are going to determine certain checks and balances here and there and recovery and quickness and uh, adaptation and stuff like that. But in terms of the overall achievement... That's going to be about the work. That's going to yeah. be about the consistency. That's going to be about your sleep, your diet, all this stuff. So Yeah, and I, I always tell this. I mean, I think a, a large part of the group that I've worked with for years uh, within training world have been individuals that don't have much of an exercise background. And I'm their kind of their introduction to working out or becoming more consistent with their workouts. And I've seen and I've seen strength gains, body comp changes in individuals across the spectrum. So these yeah. eighty this eighty year old gentleman that I'm discussing, I met him at sixty seven and you know, he couldn't even do a push up. And, you know, at this point recently I think he knocks out like twenty one push ups and wow. He's squatting and he's does little assisted pull ups. I mean he again, it, it's pretty amazing that at any age one could make gains yeah. you know obvi- you know obviously there's going to be a level of limit quote limitation but that that limitation is often self-created yes yeah i mean the body will continue to adapt as long as you provide some stimuli to it and just keep keep going all right so i think this is going to wrap it up unless you yes. had any uh any other no no this is uh 
We'll, we'll just announce that we will. We have some exciting guests coming. That's uh, right. We're weeks. gonna have we're gonna have a roundtable, man. I mean, I can't wait. It's gonna yeah, be good. So <laughs> we'll have um, get your popcorn. Fun. Yeah, we, we'll have um, some cool people coming on, and and yeah. Um, yeah, stay tuned. Yeah, thank you for listening and downloading all the great feedback. Appreciate it. All right, signing off. Daniel. Thank you for listening to A Few Good Physios. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Follow us each week while we interview guests and have clinical commentary. 